0: Jericho Brown is the author of The Tradition for which he won the Pulitzer Prize and the Patterson Poetry Prize. He is the recipient of fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard, and the National Endowment for the Arts. He is the winner of the Whiting Award. His first book, Please won the American Book Award. His second book, The New Testament, won the Anisfield-Wolf Book Award. He is the director of the Creative Writing Program
1: and a professor at Emory University. Jericho Brown, welcome to The Creative Process. (laughs) Hi, Mia. How you doing? So uh, I think you're going to start with a reading from 4 Day in the Morning for us. I'll read
2: a poem for you. 4 Day in the Morning. My mother grew morning glories that spilled onto the walkway toward her porch because she was a woman with land who showed as much by giving it color. She told me I could have whatever I worked for. That means she was an American. But she'd say it was because she believed in God. I am ashamed of America and confounded by God. I thank God for my citizenship in spite of the timer set on my life to write these words. I love my mother. I love black women who plant flowers as sheepish as their sons. By the time the blooms unfurl themselves for a few hours of light, the women who tend them are already at work. Blue. I'll never know who started the lie that we are lazy, but I'd love to wake that bastard up at a.m. in the morning toss him in a truck and drive him under God past every bus stop in America to see all those black folk waiting to go work for whatever they want. A house, a boy to keep the lawn cut, some color in the yard. My God, we leave things green.
1: That's so powerful. I mean, I think it really speaks to the power of poetry because it says so many things. I mean, to me, and I am no to you, it's something else. I can hear your mother speaking when you say some lines there. It's just the complications of love, I feel like, and our, our love of country, even like citizenship, complicated feelings there. Just tell us a little bit about the inspiration.
2: Uh, well, I, those flowers are real. I grew up with them. Um, in front of this area, this sort of flower bed area in front of our house, um, near the porch. And they were always really interesting to me. And I never know uh, where a poem is going to go when I start a poem. So I think I just started somewhere on the the music of thinking about, by music I mean literally that. The lines come to me and I write them down because they come to me as music might, like as sounds might, and I'm somehow attracted to those sounds, much more attracted to those sounds than I am aware of what I'm saying. And after writing them down, I sort of become aware of what I'm saying as I'm writing. And uh, as I become aware of what I'm saying, I realize uh, I'm writing about my mom, Uh, but not just about my mom, as you mentioned, about nation, about what it means to be a son, about race, Um, About the fact of vernacular, you know, I noticed this moment in a poem where uh, in a a very uh, American uh, vernacular, I write, she told me I could have whatever I worked for, which is, you know, even ending the sentence on the four seems to, you know what I mean, to point toward a certain kind of American idiom of speech. And so and then after that, um, I say that means she was an American, which sort of doubles up at that point or triples up maybe at that point in its meaning. So that's the kind of thing that sent me toward writing the poem. There is a, a figure in this poem I've always been interested in. And it's a literal thing that I've always seen whenever I've had to, for whatever reason, be up early in the morning at four or five, you know, in the morning. There are already people on their way to work. And it is true uh, in the cities where I've lived. When I look at um, when I'm passing, when I'm driving, and I'm passing train stops or bus stops, those people who have to, who seem to need to be at work the earliest are often black people. They're the people who um, who are doing so many things before we get to work, so that all those things are already done or have already started. Uh, and so I think something about all of that just came together in this poem.
1: Oh, definitely. And as you say, I love that phrase, the music of thinking, I feel that that really describes concisely what poetry is, like maybe prose is the grammar of thinking or the sense or the logic and the music is and speaking about music. Um, your poetry is very much of the now, but also resonates with echoes from traditions it, it draws upon, you know, growing up in Louisiana in the church. How has the church and its music influenced your writing and imagination and, and how you perform your poetry?
2: Well, I think in every way. Uh, I wouldn't even be able to delineate it if it weren't for me going growing up in the church. I don't know if I would think about anything the way I think about things, you know, uh, definitely in terms of the poems. Uh, Because I had um, a preacher whose job was every week, he had to perform. You know, I didn't think of it that way at the time, but can you imagine having a show every week you got to do and you don't know if you've done well unless people are screaming? Do you know what I'm saying? And people would be screaming. So I think that was important to me because it uh, helped me place a sort of high bar on my poetry and what I wanted from my poetry in terms of uh, how it would move an audience emotionally. Really, how it would move me emotionally as I'm as I'm writing it? Um, do I feel moved to shout? Do I feel moved to cry? Become the questions for me, and I imagine those are are the questions for anyone putting a sermon together. But definitely the, mu- the literal music also made a huge difference, the songs and the way those songs were sung, and the soul with which they were, the grit and the soul with which they were sung, and um, how pure, um, the, the attempt toward a kind of purity uh, when singing that so many performers gave off, you know, really trying to connect with, with spirit, with God uh, in the moment of singing, which is also what I hope for from uh, poems. So I think there was a there was a lot. I learned a lot about uh, form, you know, every Sunday. The program uh, at the churches where I grew up programs, the same every Sunday. You know you know exactly what's going to happen and you know when it's going to happen and yet every time i would go to church no matter how much everything the program itself was the same i was always surprised by how those things went over i was there the content changed and the way the content was delivered changed uh even something as simple as announcements you know you sort of because the announcements were different, then the person delivering the announcements would deliver them differently. Uh, Or sometimes there would be a different person delivering the announcements, right? So suddenly things are different because you hear another voice doing that thing, saying some of the same things that got repeated, right? But it's in another voice. And it was a a wonderful way, I think, for me to begin thinking about um, form and content. How do I write a sonnet? If we know what a sonnet is, how is it that I make a sonnet a surprise every time I write one? Uh, And I think I learned all that in church.
1: Oh yeah, the the church is a great, well, the earliest teachers, I mean, like our whole educational wilderness comes even out of that too. And it's true, I didn't think about it so much, but the repetition that you have, that poetry gets its power from too, uh, the repetition and the surprise, it seems like a a wonderful uh, training ground. And it, it sets you thinking also how, I mean, I think that because in some ways religion as it was, practiced, is a little bit on the wane. So you wonder mm-hmm. then, how has that affected poetry? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's in some communities not, but it's true.
2: Um, yeah, I never know if religion is actually on the wane. I always feel like we're, uh, you know, those of us who grew up in in religion, you know, if if for some reason we stop going to church or we stop uh, observing our religion in the same way we have this idea that religion is on the way because we're not participating in it and yet (laughs) you know I think for every person that exits the church there's something like 17 people that enter at the moment that we exit you know what I mean I feel like uh sometimes I'm not sure about this but I feel that sometimes our idea about things about church in particular similar to New Yorkers' ideas about Donald Trump. Like, nobody was surprised that Donald Trump became president more than people from New York. They're <laughs> like, where's the rest of this nation? <laughs> we have no clue. Do you know what I mean? So I'm not sure church is on the way. And as a matter of fact, I think, I think people, even if we look at the way uh, people choose to handle the pandemic and vaccination, uh, it becomes clear to me that there are still plenty of folk who are interested in using uh, God for whatever excuse um, they need uh, in order to maintain their foolishness. I'm not sure I think that the church is on the wane. I do think if you have a basis for archetype, for mythology, and yes, even for dogma, a kind of a um, black and white view of the world, if you have that as your basis, then you're in a good position to write poems or to make any kind of art, actually, because you're always trying to systematize and formalize what you make, even if it's brand new to you, right? So you're always thinking of figures in the same way you first got figures. You're always thinking of characters in the same way you first got characters. You're always thinking of um, how to make a villain or how to make a protagonist, at least originally, in the same way that you first got them. Now, to make them good, you want to give them some color, you know, that that black and white don't really work. Uh, But, you know, at at base, if you can start there, then you can get started. You can make something. You can uh, write the song or paint the portrait or or make the poem. Do do you understand what I mean? So I'm not sure that I, uh, I think that, but I do think that church doesn't change um, enough for any disinterest in church to change poetry it doesn't i mean it has church has changed a lot over the years you know but um it doesn't change enough in order for poetry not to still be influenced by it in the same ways
1: definitely i think there's a reason why we're called people of the book it comes from religion It informs all the other books we may write or art we may create, but I definitely know that we do owe, whether we're currently religious, we do owe something to that foundation and that mythology that, you know, and, and, and you listen to musicians, you know, all the art forms, that training ground, it enriches. I'm wondering how Louisiana and Shreveport, how did that influence the music and rhythm of your poetry? Or is that another thing it's difficult to extricate?
2: Well, yeah, it's hard to extricate, but I do know this. Um, I have found, this is going to sound strange, but I, I have found this. People in Louisiana are the people, I mean, I, I imagine this happens with any people anywhere. This is, um, this is just something I've noticed, and maybe it's, uh, you know, I'm sure it's completely silly, but just, you know, if you'll indulge me. If you watch people eat, people from Louisiana always want to put all their food together. You know, some people are really good at (laughs) eating their peas and then eating their starch and then eating chicken. You know what I mean? Um, Or even eating them in a circle or maybe putting the two things together a little. People in Louisiana always want everything to be put together like a jambalaya or like a gumbo. And I do think that there is something about that that uh, has been of use to me in my poems where I always want everything at once in a single line of poetry, right? I I mentioned those colors earlier. I just want to make the poems like a living being, right? I want the poems to be as gritty as they are delightful. Do you follow what I'm saying? And I want that all at once. And I think that's always my goal when I'm writing. I'm trying to get the taste of various things to intermingle um, while I'm writing. And maybe that just comes from the way I grew up eating and enjoying food, uh, and I also think landscape has a lot to do with it, you know. And that's factual, you know, the fact of magnolias, uh, magnolia trees in my poem, or my appreciation for the magnolia trees, which inspired me to write poems. Um, but I also think just being in a a certain kind of landscape, um, the landscape of the bayou. Uh, for a while, I lived in San Diego, California, and so there was a a different kind of a landscape coming into my, suddenly sand was in my poem. I hadn't had sand in my poem before, do you know what I'm saying, in my poems. So I do think uh, those things have, in a very direct way, I think my appreciation for the land comes from having grown up and and being put in a position where I had to take care of it over and over again. Um, Cause my dad literally did yard work for a living. So I had no choice but to do it too. And I think that's part of why I think it's the case for all three books that there's this concern with, uh, with the natural world, but particularly in the tradition, obviously, I have this concern with the natural world, which I didn't try to write. It happened because I'm from Louisiana. It happened in a natural way. It happened because of the way I have experienced the land over the years, if that makes sense.
1: Oh sure, and I think from someone who didn't grow up in Louisiana, but I appreciate it because I lived for many years in Ireland, and my husband's from Ireland, and he lived in New Orleans, uh, and and that he went all over America, but he f- could tune in more there, and I think that there is something in certain regions, in certain countries, and I think Ireland's another country or different places. There's certain people when they speak, it's almost close to singing. There's a very
2: mm-hmm. definitely.
1: Yeah, it's just that much closer, you know, and so that that must be great, you know, coming from the and of course there's the great tradition of Southern writers as well and 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 all of that, and, and also I think a little bit because I'm in Paris now so as well there's the kind of mystery in manners that I can relate to that I I feel is kind of rooted there and and now of course you're in Atlanta as well,
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and coming back to the South definitely made a huge difference to my work because I had a different appreciation for the landscape of the South and for the vernacular of the South, the ways in which people speak in the South. There's a lot that's different actually between living in Georgia and living in Louisiana. And yet there's a lot more in common than living in Louisiana and living in California where I was living before, you know, so.
1: And you're talking about landscape and uh, there is these uh, flowers throughout your, I don't know if you wanted to read another poem that is relating to that.
2: Sure, I will. I can read, um, I'll read one of the duplexes. The duplex is a form I invented and it's at once a a huzzle, a sonnet and a blues poem. Duplex. The opposite of rate is understanding, a field of flowers called paintbrushes. A field of flowers called paintbrushes, though the spring be less than actual. Though the spring be less than actual, men roam shirtless as if none ever hurt me. Men roam that myth. In truth, one hurt me. I want to obliterate the flowered field, to obliterate my need for the field and raise a building above the grasses, a building of prayer against the grasses, My body a temple in disrepair. My body is a temple in
1: disrepair. The opposite of rape is understanding. How did you arrive? I know it's a process of arrival. So how did you arrive at that? You didn't know going in, you're discovering it along the way.
2: So I decided what the form I don't know if this is the best way to invent a form, but it's true that it happened. I decided what the form would look like before I ever wrote a poem. And by that, what I mean is I understood it was 14 lines. I understood where the repeated lines were. I knew that I wanted a poem of couplets where each couplet seemed like it was its own poem before moving on to the next couplet. Um, I knew that it was gonna be nine to 11 syllables. Um, so there were things I sort of just knew before I ever wrote a word, in the, in the case of the duplexes in particular. And then I quite literally, I did this thing everybody thinks is crazy, but it's, liter- it's not crazy to me because it's actually par for the course in how I make poems. Every line that I ever wrote that was in a failed poem, sometimes I have lines that I'm attracted to, but they haven't come to anything. Every line that I ever wrote that was nine to 11 syllables, I put in a single file, a single word document. And that document went on for pages and pages. <laughs> and I printed that document and I cut into slivers of paper all of these nine to 11 syllable lines. And I would, I literally looked at all of those lines all over my house, all over the dining room table, all over the floor. And I said, um, which of these is the strangest, or best, or most unique, or most original. And I picked some. And I decided that those would be the first and the last line. So I was already on my way, (laughs) do you know what I mean? Because I knew my first and my last line were always going to be the same. And after that, it was a matter of making and building couplets. So you know, for a duplex, because of the repeated lines, you actually only need seven lines. You don't need 14, because you're going to repeat them, right? (laughs) So for every, every time I had a line, I would just literally, it was almost like process of elimination. I had a big stack of slivers of paper on one side and a single line on another side. And I would put under that line every one of those lines to see which one sung out to me as a couplet. And as soon as I got one that sung out to me as a couplet, you know, sometimes there were some narrowing down. Sometimes there would be two I had to choose from or three I had to choose from. But I would decide like, oh, now that's a couplet. That's a poem on its own. So after that, what's the next step? You take that second line and you do it all over again, right? You go to the line bank and you pull a bunch of lines and you keep pulling until you figure out which line makes that a makes that a couplet. And then I just kept doing that over and over again until I had these couplets that I could put together. And then I revised those into poems. In this particular poem, this line, I hope that made sense. Maybe that sounded crazy, but that's that's what no, happened.
1: No, I think it's uh, very inventive and it's a great way to make use of our, um, I wouldn't say waste basket, but you know what I mean? Like, it's like trying no, to-
2: but, but I think it's important to say, Mia, because most of my poems are actually built from the waste basket. We understand that the unit of poetry is the line. So I have to believe that if I have a collection of great lines, then I probably have a good poem on my hands, you know what I mean? It's up to me to figure out the best order for those lines. It's up to me to figure out how to get one line to lead into or out of another. But my job is to just write the line. Um, Hemingway has this thing, I'm gonna quote him wrong, but he was like, if I could just write one simple sentence, I just have to write one sentence, you know? And ultimately I think that same way, I just gotta write a line and I just gotta keep writing a line. And if I keep writing a line, then I can put those together and I can make something of them. I can let them lead the way toward the poem. And So many of these lines, you probably hear it uh, even when I read it, the opposite of rape is understanding, is a line that was sitting around for a very long time. And I understood that I was attracted to that line, but I didn't know what to do with it. Um, it, it seemed true to me. Uh, and then I had to do the work of enjamming lines. So for instance, that sentence actually reads, the opposite of rape is understanding a field of flowers called paintbrushes. A field of flowers called paintbrushes, another line from another year, from another time, in another notebook, just sitting around for a very long time. A field of flowers called paintbrushes, because I liked the sound of that. And it was something I actually saw in Round Top, Texas once a field of flowers. I was like, What are all these flowers? It's barely, you know, it's barely March. And they were like, Oh, those are paintbrushes. <laughs> Do you know what I was like, Okay, I'll write that down. But then I don't use it, so I have to use it later. So yeah, 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 that's that's how many of my poems get built.
1: I think that's so important because one thing, I mean, I strongly believe in the imagination of the writer, but also as the reader. So by marrying those disparate lines, you kind of make them make sense but you're also allowing us to make certain imaginative leaps and i feel that readers love that when their imagination you know their intelligence and they can have a whole different interpretation they don't have to know where it came from but they can find the links and the other thing where we're saying is that you might call it oh it's just a simple line or it's just a simple sentence but in fact it's also setting the bar very high because we all know that we usually traditionally we would spend a lot of effort on making that first line good or that last line good. And what you're saying is every line has to be like a first line or a last line. Yeah. So yeah. that's a that's a demand you're putting on yourself, but it means that you know you're you're not slacking. So I I love that I think that's very inventive and it's a great like philosophy for people.
2: Yeah. I had this uh, there's a, a line that I actually read or at least a part of a line I actually read in my first poem I read for you four day in the morning. And I had written it down. It sort of stayed in notebooks for years. And I just like, there's no way I'll ever use that. Uh, and it's the, it's the sentence, uh, I love my mother, which seemed on its own very difficult to say in a poem, very hard to get into a poem, uh, because it seems so automatically sentimental and kind of cliche. And so then the question is, uh, how would I ever get it in a poem? And you sort of, you're waiting for the other lines to come that need to be around that line in order for that line to work. Because otherwise, you sort of know maybe that's not the beginning, maybe that's not the end, but there is a place for it. So the lines will, um, will lead you to your poem, and they will talk to one another. And sometimes uh, some of them are born waiting for others of them to be born.
1: There's a lot of beauty in your writing. But as you say, if it's too beautiful or it could seem sentimental, so you have to offset it. And that's what we, I mean, what I appreciate in your poetry is that there is a lot of complex emotions. So, you know, love can exist alongside chaos. If we can talk about your early family life or, you know, alongside, you know, violence and, but there's tenderness.
2: Yeah. That's part of what I was saying earlier, right? I I want it, I want it all because I know that's what life is really like. And uh, I do not, I'm not interested in Hallmark cards. I mean, I'm interested in them when somebody's birthday comes around or when it's Mother's Day, but I don't want to write Hallmark cards. Hallmark cards only gets at an emotion from one vantage point. And that's why they're there. So they need to be there so that we can say happy birthday or I love you, mom, or whatever, because that's true. And it's all from one side of only appreciation. But we know better than that about love, right? (laughs) Love is not one side of one vantage point. It's just not. And so my poems have to be complex because they're poems. Uh, And that's what I think poems are.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, in the writing of your poems, you know, going back to that complexity did you and and if there's not only one side of love did you come to a deeper understanding of your parents and your upbringing the challenges they may have faced a sense of forgiveness or you know how your poems help see you through that and memory
2: I think um well you know the thing about writing poems is that you're in a position where you have to tell the truth and so you have to face what things really are uh and who you really are and so I do think that whenever I write a book at first I'm not aware of what themes I'm putting together, but as I become more and more aware, because I'm concentrating on the book, I don't understand until after the book is done that I'm also doing some work on myself. And I've been handling those themes ultimately so that I can get over them. Uh, and I don't, I'm not aware of that while I do it. I know that now, cause I have three books. I mean, I think I didn't really even understand that completely when I had two books, you know, um, I think, my relationship to my father changed after writing my first book which in many ways is about my dad and my relationship to god changed after i wrote my second book and um and my relationship to race to nation to the natural world i'm much more aware of the of that and better at um better at weathering all of that since writing my third book so i think I think your relationship to your themes in reality, not just in the book, right? Your relationship to your, the themes uh, is altered as you put the book together uh, and you're, you come out of it a different person. I also think just plain old getting older helps too, you know? Being my father's age at points in my childhood that I remember my father, right? being his age at those certain points is very useful to me uh, when it comes to understanding my dad.
1: Yes, and I think that you you said it very beautifully that you said poems mirror the process of prayer. Mm-hmm. And I feel like writing also, as you were saying, it's a process of living, you're kind of, you're processing things, it's going on the page, but it's also going into you and something, I feel strongly as well, There, there is the writing that one does at the desk. And there's also the writing that one does in the process of living, I feel like, I don't know, I get a sense from you. And I, I that you're quite sincere, quite honest, you've spoken before about how you believe people when they told you something that you thought that they were would tell the truth. And it took you a while, I could relate to that. It took you a while to understand that people would say things that it wouldn't always mean. But I think that's a great, you know, having this, Thin skin or having this um relationship to life that's kind of sincere and honest is, a, I think that's great. So, if you're living your life that way, like you're communicating in that way in your normal, just everyday life, then you sit on the desk, it, the transition is more natural. You know, it's not like yeah. something you only do when you're sitting at the desk.
0: Yeah,
2: that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's true. I also think, um, once you commit yourself to a life, you really have to commit, you know, and I decided a long time ago now uh, that I was going to be a writer. And so that meant that um, I couldn't be surprised by the fact that while I'm looking at avocados and choosing them at the grocery store, I'm also revising a poem somewhere in some corner of my head. You know, I used to feel bad about that. I used to be like, be present, Jericho. Do you know what I mean? But that, it turns out that that is the way in which I am present. I'm always, because I can pick a good avocado. I'm always, always writing poems. And I think it's important for me to understand that as a part of my identity and to understand there's nothing wrong with that, right? That's, that's a good thing about me. And I also, I just think, um, uh, you know, it's fleeting, uh, but I think that my naivete and my, um, my sincerity are the best and the worst things that ever happened to me. I know that if I didn't have this sort of child, I mean, I have to recalibrate my, you know, I'm old enough now to recalibrate myself and know that I'm being absolutely romantic and silly. But my first look at everything is through the eyes of a child. And sometimes I'm like, you know, I I, I like to, um, in my head, I will make an entire script.
1: (laughs) Do you know what I'm
2: saying? And, uh, And then I figure out that script doesn't work. Do you know what I mean? But I think having the original script is where imagination and wonder comes from. And so I'm, um, everyone's not that way. So I'm grateful that I am because I wouldn't have these poems if I wasn't.
1: Oh, exactly. I mean, there's something, I mean, I feel that that's like one of the great challenges in life is to how to maintain your innocence through maturity Mm -hmm. and how, I mean, so that's, you know, the artist is closer to the child, but yeah, as you say, it's, you know, you're not afraid to leap. Children don't know that they can't fly. And, uh, you know, so they sometimes scrape their knees, but like we need that. We need to be able to jump uh, out and stick our necks out. So that's really beautiful. And I think that Anna was curious about speaking to this point of like, you know, not being afraid to leap, something about the writing process.
0: Yeah, so I wanted to ask, um, I've always thought in the writing mind where you think of things poetically and you, you live your life in that way and kind of fighting with yourself about that presence that you may lack or that it's a gift, you know, some days are, you have a different perspective than others. I wanted to ask what techniques or ways you manage writer's block while writing a book or a poem. I know some experience this more than others and some experience this at, at different points in their life whether they're going through a hard time, but how do, you, how do you go about dealing with that?
2: It's a really great question. You know, it's hard to talk about because I don't want to, because uh, I know what it's like to have a difficult time writing. I know what it's like to feel like I'm a writer, but I'm not writing. So am I a writer? Do you know what I mean? Uh, I'm actually having one of those times now. But I have to uh, uh, say this. In order to be who I am, in order to do what I do, I cannot believe in what in writer's block. Like I don't, I just don't think it's there. Like I don't believe. I don't know who came up with the word, the term, the fr- you know what I mean. But I don't, I don't believe it. I, instead, what I believe is that a few things. One, the wonderful thing about getting in a relationship is that you realize. Because I didn't know this before I was in a relationship. Before I was in a relationship, I thought, oh my god, I never get any writing done oh, I wish I was writing. Oh, I really should be writing, I'm not writing. And then, you know, when I had a man, uh, I had somebody who would tell me, we're gonna be late for the movies because you're always writing. So I think, uh, and you know, if they tell you that enough, if you realize enough, like, um, are you gonna come to dinner or are you still gonna be writing? Do you know what I mean? Like if that happens enough, you realize, oh, maybe I'm actually doing more writing than what I realized. So that's the first thing, right? Um, The second thing is, again, the avocados, right? That that there are moments where I'm not at the desk, but I'm living life. uh, And living life is actually what leads to writing. You have to have experiences to write about, whether or not you're aware of those experiences as you are writing them down. Because if you're doing music first, maybe you're not aware of what you're writing. And yet those experiences are what come to fruition in your writing. You, You become aware like, oh, I did get on that roller coaster that time that I haven't thought about in 20 years. Oh, I did um, make love to that cute person <laughs> that I haven't thought about in 10 years. Do you know what I'm saying? But you've got to make love. you got to get on roller coasters. you got to get your heart broken. you got to dance. you got to get out and do things. And that, too, is a part of writing. And you have to sort of trust that you're a writer by identity. And if you can trust that you're a writer by identity, then you don't have to be at a desk, do you know what I'm saying? You don't have to be in front of a computer. You don't have to be literally scribbling or typing at the moment because you're a writer. And if you could sort of, if you could trust that, then uh, you eventually, you begin to see that, oh, actually, yes, I am getting writing done. Do you know what I mean? So I just don't think that, you know what I mean? Like, I don't think there is writers, but I also think That generally, I mean, there are some exceptions, but generally people who believe that they have writer's block, those are also people who have some writing done. If you have some writing done, you always have something to work on, no matter how much it is failing. So, and the wonderful thing about being a poet, I don't know how well this works in fiction, right? Obviously, but, and maybe it would work just fine in memoir. Uh, But the wonderful thing about being a poet is I understand that 10 failed poems is great. Number one, because I have something to work on. So I don't have writer's block. I just got bad poems I gotta fix. Do you know what I'm saying? So that's number one, but then number two, I understand that if I have 10 bad poems, I have 10 good lines. There's no way I wrote 10 poems and all of the poems have just every line is bad. Do you understand what I mean? No way. I have to have at least one good line in each of 10 good poems. If I've got 10 good lines, I can say, you know, forget the poems. Let me take these lines out and put them on a Microsoft Word document and move them around until something happens. Even if nothing happens, if I do that for 20 minutes, that means I've been writing for 20 minutes. So I don't have writer's block. I think writer's block, that phrase, comes from not having finished work to turn into some editor somewhere. But finishing is not writing. You know, having, you know, if the, the moment that you actually turn something in is the very moment that you are not writing. That's a, that's actually your worst moment because that is your start over moment. Do you know what I mean? That is your well is now dry. Let me go run around and swallow rain. Do you know what I'm saying? Quite, you know, like literally, let me go out in the rain and dance in it. Because that's how dry the whale well is after you've turned something in. I miss, this last book I wrote, The Tradition, I miss writing it every day. And I think part of my problem with getting writing done is that I miss writing that book. And I gotta let that girl go. Do you know what I'm saying? And if you, I mean, for me at least, the joy was not, I mean, I was actually a little, I mean, when I finally turned the tradition in, I was a little sad, you know, because it was gone. This thing, this, it had been my life. It had been my life for four or five years, I think. Do you know what I mean? Maybe six. Like I was, I had been writing the, what else was I doing? (laughs) Writing, you know, I did a whole bunch of other stuff, but whether I knew it or not, I was writing the tradition and definitely in the last year or two of writing a tradition I was like oh look I got this book I'm working on girl I'm writing a book but I could have messed that up by thinking it was writer's block oh I'm not done with this book I've been working on this book for five years so I just think there are different ways of looking at things also everybody's first book everybody's first show everybody's first everything always takes years and years and years to write sometimes two or three decades if you're a poet. And you don't have a first book, and you're 30, that means you've been writing your first book for 30 years. Cause everything from the last 30 years you are ready to put in there. You didn't have writer's block for 30 years. You just don't have a book yet.
1: Or enjoying yourself so much you're afraid to let it go.
2: Yeah, maybe uh, or
1: children too, you know you don't want them to leave home.
2: Yep, yep. Yep, that's really good yeah. and
1: so i I want to say, yeah, I want oh I don't want to leave behind the duplex because I love that. I think it's a way also you found it. To- sort of trick your mind it's almost like found poetry too like except you found your own poems yeah you yeah. Turn them into new poems yeah uh, so i know that's lovely it's uh writer's block proof but i do want to talk about you know you won the pulitzer and uh that does relate not to writer's block but there's a pressure there's an expectation like voice of a generation or voice of a you know of a period or and uh i don't know if that, how that influenced you or you you can kind of put it all aside and.
2: Yeah, I do think, I didn't know that that was part of what was going on, but I do think it made things a little more difficult or has made things a little more difficult. I'm a little less worried now. I mean, but I'm at the beginning of a little less worried. I was, I was worried though (laughs) because I did think, I didn't think I could get that feeling because I didn't think that I was, in any particular way, invested in the Pulitzer. Do you know what I mean? Like, what I mean is, I didn't have the expectation of the planet Earth that it would give me the Pulitzer, right? You don't, you know, if I did, <laughs> then I would have, I mean, you know, I actually failed at winning the Pulitzer twice before I won it. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I didn't, I never thought, I mean, there's a poem in this book called Good White People. I didn't think this book was going to win the Pulitzer Prize. Do you know what I mean? It's not my own. I just didn't have that idea. And yet I must have been moved by that because I do think that's part of the reason why writing, I mean, things would be slow anyway, because I had just finished a book. When you finish something, things are slow at the beginning. But I do think things have sort of been slow for a while. Partially, I can admit partially because I I think I became overwhelmed with the fact of, oh, I did this thing. How am I going to do it again? Well, I'm not. But there's something about that that's easier to say logically than it is to feel emotionally.
1: When you mention logic and feeling, people read for different reasons. So maybe there's that expectation, whereas I know you're a teacher, and I think you're a very good teacher. I've heard good things (laughs) about you. But then maybe when you win the Pulitzer or, or these other large prizes, people in a way expect when they're reading your work to be moved, but also what is it going to teach them there's this different like so now you're like a teacher for the nation maybe
2: yeah mhm it's also hard to like you know i really like the fact that i'm a person who thinks about people and yet in order to be an artist you sort of have to let people go you know you can't have this expectation you can't you can't think of yourself or your work in front of others in order to make the work such a weird thing right it's, very different from being a performer or a singer. I guess when you sing a song, you're probably aware in a different way, like, oh, this is what that's going to sound like to them. But I have to actually not think about that at all. And that's much easier before you know that there are people. You know, like having an appreciation for people, and there aren't that many. But then suddenly you become aware that like, oh, people read my book. People are reading my book. And so you have to trick yourself out I think I'm in the midst of tricking myself out of that awareness so that I can go back to writing. I mean, I've been, I have been writing and I find that what I got to do is I really got to put myself in a position that I was before where I didn't have any awareness of anybody else outside of, outside of my house where I'm getting work done.
1: Well, we're so happy about that. And we're, we're excited about, you know, your future writing, but also when you mentioned music, I was wondering about your influences, both, you know, the writers, but also from the musical world or other, you know, arts forms that, you know, really meant something to you. It kind of gave you permission or say, oh, wow, I want to do that. I want to make people feel and think that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I learned a lot from Stevie Wonder quite simply about artistry and again, about how to include all of one's feelings. You know, there are very different kinds of songs that you get from him, how to do many things at once, uh, how to hold many many balls in the air at once. You know, when you're writing a poem, and when you're revising a poem, when you're working on a poem, you're thinking about um, theme, but you're also thinking about sound, you're thinking about rhyme, you're thinking about line, you're thinking about line break, you're thinking about um, color, you're thinking about the mode in which you're speaking, the way a certain part of the poem feels and trying to write toward the opposite of that feeling at some point in the poem. And I think I learned a lot of that from listening to his songs and, and the complexity of his songs. And I think I learned a lot about flair, about subtlety from people like Diana Ross and, and Dionne Warwick. They're very important singers to me. And I learned, I think, a lot about being completely and wholly who you are in a poem from performers like uh, Patti LaBelle and, um, and Gladys Knight. It's sort of just also how to stay in the pocket, how to allow things to be as simple as they are, maybe from people like Luther Vandross who I've been listening to a lot lately. So I do think that music's been been a huge influence and very important, particularly when I think about uh, the artists of a of a particular period or or time, and 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 not not for classical music or anything like that. But really, just for um, you know old school R and B, yeah,
1: yeah. And I think that also, oh, I think of the uh, duplex form as being a bit like jazz too. This kind of finding, a kind of improvisational. Yeah. And in terms of, I don't know if you think of yourself as an activist, but were there some artists who, you know, you just like how they bring the two together and like are powerful voices?
2: Yeah, um, I think Audre Lorde was probably that person for me, Adrian Rich, many writers that, uh, that we would think of as writers of the, of the women's movement or writers of um, uh, Alice Walker, pro- really, really important writer for me. Something about the way in which uh, those women handled their understanding of, of sex and gender in their work, particularly the Black women, those Black women, helped me understand how to, how I was going to have to be able to handle both race and sexuality. So something about that I think was was very useful. So yeah, I think there are... There are poets like that that have been very important. Obviously, the poets of the Black Arts Movement, Sonia Sanchez, people like Amir Baraka. Their influence was widespread in a way that I couldn't get away from it. So there's always been this idea, but you know, I, there's a way that that's special, and then there's a way that it's not. You know, there there aren't a political poems. They're just they just aren't there. Uh, the world is too much with us. Is you know that's a that's a political poem, a very political poem actually, and I think. Uh, something about the past, something about us looking at the past has us assume that these things are not political, but they're. But I think all the poets of any time are always activists in some way, whether they like it or not. So, because you're yeah. writing, you know, you're always writing your moment.
1: Speaking also of music, because I, I love the way you described it, poetry as a music of thinking and also that you said that your experience of poetry, even going back to, I guess, when you were, you know, just first encountering it is that you could read it and you could hear it, could hear the music of it. I wonder, do you ever wish, or I don't know, have you, you know, done some things in music? Do you ever wish you could have that, that draw upon it? Or do you like the silence and the sound?
2: Oh, I mean, I would love to write songs for people. I like writing, I do like writing songs. And I would love any opportunity to write songs and hear them. So I'm not a singer, but I love to write songs. And I would love, I have this dream of recording uh, my poems in a way that's set to certain music in the style of uh, people like uh, Nikki Giovanni's early records. You know, she has a she has an album called The Way I Feel that's produced by Arif Martin. And Sissy Houston is singing in the background. And I just think it's the, one of the smartest things I've ever heard. And I would love to do something like that with my poems. So yeah, I think about that a lot, actually.
1: Oh well, I'll try to put it in the ear of somebody when doing some interviews with the Songwriters Hall of Fame. I'm sure that some people they just don't know; they're just shy. But uh, it's it's just interesting. Sometimes I'm jealous for of musicians because of that thing where that it doesn't have to make perfect sense, but you know how it makes you feel. And I guess in in closing, you know, we're an educational initiative, so we think a lot about the future, you know, the importance of arts and, you know, our education system, the kind, you know, the environment, the kind of world we're leaving the next generation. So what were, you know, a few life lessons that were important to you, you know, teachers are important to you. What would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember?
2: I guess... I would just always want people to know that I tried. My very good friend, Stephen Jubert, he always says, nothing beats failure, but a try, which is true. You know, every day is just a big fat try. And, um, you know, I want to be a good man. I want to be a good poet. And I hope people remember um, that, that I tried at that. And a lot of times I failed, but baby, I was, I was, I was giving it my all, honey, every day. So I just, oh, so yeah, I think that's all I would ever want anybody to, um, to know about me as they think about their own work at trying, you know.
1: Would you like to close on a poem? Do we have, uh... I have
2: all kinds of poems everywhere. Um, I'll read another poem from the tradition since it's here. And I'll read, a, I'll read the last poem in the book, which is another duplex. And it's also a Cento, so it uses all the lines from the other duplexes in the book. Duplex, Cento. My last love drove a burgundy car, color of a rash, a symptom of sickness. We were the symptoms, the road, our sickness. None of our fights ended where they began. None of the beaten end where they begin. Any man in love can cause a messy corpse, but I didn't want to leave a messy corpse obliterated in some lilied field, stench obliterating lilies of the field, the murderer young and unreasonable. He was so young, so unreasonable, steadfast and awful, tall as my father. Steadfast and awful, my tall father, was my first love. He drove a burgundy car." Thank you so much for having me.
1: That's so powerful. That's really like, it's like an elegy for our time. This time we've all been holding on and and surviving through. So, I mean, even just that poem, you don't ever have to think that you have only just tried because you've made us all feel so much. Thank you, Jericho Brown, for the intimacy, vulnerability and honesty of your poetry, which invites us to understand the beauty and chaos of our lives and the human spirit. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process.
2: Thank you. This is great. You. Thank you. One, two, three,
0: four. Jericho Brown shows us through his poems, the raw emotion and complexities of this life. He draws upon dimensions of faith, love, chaos, and romance and simplicity. He can truly tell us a tale of our own in just a few words, tapping into the human aspects of both simple and complex themes. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Anna Iseli. Digital Media Coordinator is Phoebe Brous. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or to submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info.